Well, good morning. Uh, Like Mark said, my name's Thomas, and um, I'm just excited to be here with y'all and thankful for Mark giving me an opportunity this morning and giving him a a chance to have a a little break as he's a full-time dad with Sarah being in Key West all week. Um, So we've been walking through this series uh, on the book of John, and um, we... We are actually now into double digits. This is week 10 of the John series, so congratulations. We're making some good progress in the book. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open them to John chapter 6, and that's where we're going to be this morning. And uh, we're skipping over a story, the feeding of the 5,000. We'll come back to it next week, but this morning we're in John chapter 6, and we're going to see three things from Jesus in this passage to the disciples, but also to us. It's going to speak into our fears. It's going to speak into our failures. It's going to speak into our hard seasons of life. And so John chapter 6, we'll start in verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, so that's the feeding of the 5,000 he's referring to, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, so that he is talking about uh, the Jewish people thought the Messiah was going to come and be kind of a military leader. and. and bring the Jewish nation back to prominence, that they would kind of free them from uh, uh, governing, the governing of the Roman Empire, but that's not the case. That's, we know that Jesus came in a different form, but Jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself. <clears throat> when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. And so at first glance, um, we, we see that Jesus is kind of um, sends the disciples out because he needed a bit of, a bit of uh, alone time. He needed to recharge. It was a very big day for them, and they were feeding 5,000 just out of you know, a couple of fish and loaves of bread, and so he's a little tired, sends them on. But if we kind of dig into this passage a little bit more, we see that there's a little bit more going on. And uh, he is trying to create a distraction. It kind of reminds me of like those old Western shows from the 50s and 60s, or even like 1883 for some of us that are just getting into Westerns. Like, you know, someone over here is creating a diversion so the rest of them can kind of escape. And so Jesus is creating a diversion. The good thing is Jesus is the diversion, Right. They didn't come, the crowd of people didn't come to see the disciples. They came to see this Jesus, this guy that has been doing miracles, healing people, and they, he just fed them. And so the, the crowd is, in, is just looking at Jesus, and he sends his disciples on to get into a boat and go on to the next town, which is across the lake. And once they get a head start, he kind of goes on, dismisses the crowd and goes on into the hills to recharge and to pray to his father. You see, the disciples don't really know what to think about 
what just went down with this feeding of the 5,000. And now they find themselves trying to cross the Sea of Galilee, and they feel, I would imagine, a little bit alone at this point. You know, they're, they're tired, and now they're having to row across the, 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 this lake, and they're having a hard time even deciphering what direction they're supposed to be going because it's the middle of the night. And the sea is big. It's not like going out to Lake Arlington or Joe Pool. I mean, the Sea of Galilee is five times the size of Joe Pool Lake in acreage. I mean, it's a vast lake. And it's eight miles long, and it's five miles wide. And they don't, re- Jesus doesn't come out to them until they're about halfway out on this lake. And so, I mean, have you ever been caught out on a boat, kind of stranded? Maybe you ran out of gas. Maybe you are just tired because you were canoeing. I mean, anybody been in that position before? Yeah, a few of us have. It's not a fun position. I remember going kayaking on this small lake. I mean, the lake is not very big. Um, It's probably a few hundred yards across and maybe, you know, a mile long. So a fairly short lake. But I was out there kayaking, and um, they they told me, you know, if if the wind kicks up, you're going to have a hard time going into the wind. So make sure that you're always, you know, that way. If the dock is here, go this way so that if the wind goes you can kind of just kind of, you know, carry yourself into the dock. Well, I'm sitting out on the lake, dock's over here, I'm out here, and the wind kicks up, right? And I'm like, all right, now it's game time. I'm going to figure out what I'm made of. And so I turn my, my kayak around to point towards the, the dock, and I'm, I'm going, I'm rowing as fast as I can, and as fast as I can, I'm rowing for probably a minute, I'm starting to get a little tired, and I stop, and I look up, look at the shore to see how far away I, how, how much distance I've done, and I realize I haven't done much distance at all. In fact, I've probably lost distance because of the wind, the current just taking me along. And I get this feeling this, this in the pit of my stomach, like I'm a little doubtful that maybe I'm not able to make it to the dock. Maybe I need to start figuring out my plan A or plan B and plan C. And fear starting to creep in, and this is where we find the disciples. Many of them knew how to navigate the waters. Some of them were fishermen. They'd been in this situation before. It made me think of just life, right? That life is full of just hard things, tough things, tiring things. And at times, we just lose direction. It's not even a storm. What is the solution? What is the remedy for this situation, for the disciples and for us? What is the solution? Well, Jesus is the solution we realize that we are going to truly need the presence of God in our lives this morning. You see, Jesus may have been distant in physical location because he, was, he had gone up to the hills to pray, but he also knew the whole time where they were. He knew what situation they were in. And this story is also, also told in... Um, the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 6, 45 through 56, and it kind of fills in some of the details that John doesn't quite give us. And so Mark six forty-eight says, he saw his disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. They had been out there 
we see all night. It's probably 3, 4, 5 a.m. at this point. And they're at the end of their strength. They got nothing in them, and they need rescue. They need Jesus to come show up like he just did for the 5,000-plus people that he fed. He needed that kind of presence. The disciples did. My son, Luke, he is uh, my youngest son, Luke. He's 20 months old, full-on toddler, right? Cute, yes. Um, And he loves going on walks. Now, he's to the age now that he does not want to be pushed in a stroller. He's too big for that. He wants to walk the trail with me. You know, a a three-quarter mile walk for him is probably doing like a marathon because of his short legs, but he loves it. And so one day I come home from the church office, I walk in the back door, and uh, I hear, Dada! And Luke grabs his shoes and he brings them to me. And so I put my stuff down real quick, and I sit down, I put his shoes on. He wants to go on a walk, I know that. So how do you say no to that picture, right? I mean, you can't say no to that face. And so we're on our, we go Outside, we walk out on our back patio. It's a small wood uh, patio and it has two steps down onto the driveway. And so we're walking out. I'm holding his hand. We take the first step. He does it well. One of my other kids says, Hey, Dad, I look up naturally. And uh, Luke falls out of my, my grip and falls to the ground. He kind of catches himself, but he kind of scrapes his head on the driveway, right? I'm like, Oh, great. What are, what's about to happen? <clears throat> He's screaming. I pick him up. He has this big white mark on it, and then pinpricks of blood are starting to come. I'm like, oh, no, mom is going to be so mad. So we run inside. I get an ice pack. I get a towel. I put it on his forehead. He screams louder. It's like he just needed me to grab him. So I'm just holding him as tight as I can. What did Luke need? He needed me to hold him. He didn't need me to tell him it's going to be okay. He didn't need me to apologize. By the way, no concussion, none of of that. He's okay. He bounced right back about five minutes later, but he's crying as loud as he can. He just needed my presence. He needed me to hold him. Really, when mom came in five minutes later, he needed mom to hold him, but that's another story. So, but this is the same thing with us and God, right? Have you ever felt like God doesn't see you? Do you ever feel like God doesn't see the struggles of life that you're fighting? He doesn't see the fears that I'm I'm experiencing. And have you ever said this? I don't feel God's presence. I mean, we have all said it. But the truth of the matter is his presence is with us even when we don't feel his presence. And this story illustrates that so well. Jesus was far away in physical distance from the disciples. But the whole time, he knew what was going on in the boat. He knew, he knew where they were. And he knew that he was going to need to physically show up for the disciples. And for us, he desires to draw us close to him. It's no coincidence that at the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus is giving the last commands to his, to his disciples to go into all the land and, and tell the good news. And he ends it with, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
You see, Jesus has no plans to leave, a, to leave us to life without his presence. He knows we need his presence in our lives. So he's present. The second is he's in control. So again, if we flip back to the same story in Mark, we find some more information. And uh, we'll read Mark 6.48. He saw disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. And then if we skip down to verse 51, it says, Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. So at this point, Jesus had done some pretty cool miracles. And disciples, they're catching on that this guy is pretty, pretty amazing. He can, he's capable of some crazy things. And all these stories that we're reading about in the book of John, they happen in about a two to three year period. And they're all leading up to Jesus entering into Jerusalem and being crucified on a cross and, and raising from the dead. But he's slowly building his case for being God in the flesh over this time to his disciples. And this is the first miracle we read in John about Jesus having ability to have power over nature. And the, the disciples are just taken aback. They're amazed and they see just a little bit of God's glory through this experience. And he uses two things to show his control over creation, right? He walks on water, which we all know is physically impossible. But he shows his ability to defy the natural order of things. And then he calms the seas, showing his mastery over creation. If we flip back to John 1, we, we were in John 1 for the Christmas series, and we saw that Jesus was with God in the beginning, and that his creation, that he was part of creation. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and we talked about how the, the Word is actually translated as Logos, which actually means Jesus, so we could actually sub that in for the Word. So if we read it, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And so we see that Jesus was with God the Father in the beginning. He's part of creation. And without him, nothing else was made, right? So Paul echoes this in Colossians. Not that he is also in control of all things. It says, Colossians 1.16, God created all things and holds all things together, both in heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible. And so we see that this Jesus was there at the beginning. He created all things. He holds all things together. And this Jesus shows up on the water in front of the disciples and jumps in the boat with them. And as you can imagine, they are awestruck with amazement. They're just like, can you just imagine their faces? They're all just like, what just went down? We're amazed. that Not only is he in control of all things, he also pursues us. He went after the disciples. He runs after us. 
And so we see that he has the power and the presence to lead us through life. So we see that he's, he's present, he's in control, and lastly, he's, he's personal. John six nineteen through 20 says, When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. So we see that Jesus did this big public miracle with the feeding of the 5,000. And they could be feeling a little bit alone. We talked about how they would be feeling out on the water. I mean, they just probably waited, you know, a thousand. They were waiters, right? They were waiting on a thousand different tables. And they were busting all these tables. And so they're exhausted. And now they're rowing across the lake. And they're ready to give up. But Jesus... He shows up personally to them on the water. He doesn't send somebody else. He doesn't send an angel. He goes out to them himself. No one else is around to see Jesus walk on water. No one else is around to see him calm the seas. Just him and the disciples. An amazing sight to see, I'm sure. That's the amazement part of the story. But if we, but he does two things that drill down even deeper than his control over all these things to show how much he cared for his disciples. First, he tells them, it is I, don't be afraid. And at first pass, we read this as Jesus just identifying himself, and he is, right? But he's also, uh, but it's just kind of like when I go into work on Monday morning at the church office. I'll walk in, Mark's in his office, he can't see the front door, he just hears the front door open, he says, hello? And I say, it's me, good morning. I'm just identifying myself, and that's what, to a point, that what Jesus is doing, saying, it is I, because they the disciples can't make out who it is out on the water. In the, the Gospel of Mark, it actually says they think it's a ghost. And so he's trying to reassure them that it's just me. Uh, don't be afraid. But if we look at that f- phrase, it is I, it echoes something from the Old Testament. It is I can be actually translated as it is I am. And which may sound like a little funny or grammatically weird, but what Jesus is referring to is that he's referring himself to God as God. Just like God identified himself to Moses back in Exodus 3. You see, Moses, he's just tending his flock in Exodus 3, and actually it was his father-in-law's flock, and he's looks over and he sees this bush on fire but there's no fire around it it's just the bush right so he's like that's kind of weird I should probably go check that out goes over the bush is on fire but it's not burning up the bush kind of weird then he hears God say hey you are Moses you are standing on holy ground take off your sandals so he takes off his sandals and then God says my people are being enslaved by Egypt I need you to go get them for me Free them. And Moses is like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm just tending the flock over here. He goes, 
I need you to go. I need you to tell them that the God of their fathers, Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, is saying, come on, we're going to get you out of here. And Moses is like, well, I don't, I don't think that's enough for them to go. I, I really need to know who you are. What is your name? And so God tells them, I, my name is, tell them I am who I am sent me. Sounds like a little bit of double talk, but I am who I am means the Hebrew word Yahweh. Yahweh. And so this is the first time we see God tell a person his actual name. And what I am who I am actually means is I was, I am, and I will always be is what he's describing himself as. And so this name is very personal, right? We all have names given to us by our parents. It's how everyone refers to us. And, it, and for God's name, it gives us a peek into his character, his desire for relationship with us. And so we see that Moses goes on to, to Egypt. He frees the the Israelites, and they walk out of Egypt and across the Red Sea. The whole time, um, they're being led by God's presence. And God's presence is very visible. It's this pillar of cloud, if you can imagine, by day. And at night, becomes a pillar of fire. And it's in front of them in the sky. And it's leading Moses and leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, to Mount Sinai, and eventually his presence would take him to the promised land. As great as Moses was, faithful to God, close to God, talked with him often, Moses failed. He sinned too. He wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. Joshua actually had to take him into the promised land because of Moses' sin. You see, Moses couldn't save the Jewish people. He couldn't save us. We needed a better Moses. We needed Yahweh in the flesh. God come to us, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, it is I. Jesus is revealing to his disciples who he is. And then he says, another echo of the Old Testament, don't be afraid. You see, he tells Abraham, before Moses, he tells Abraham to go to a new land. And he tells him, don't be afraid, take courage, I will be with you. He tells Moses to go save his people from Pharaoh. Don't be afraid, take courage, I will be with you. He tells Joshua to go in the promised land. Don't be afraid, take courage, I will be with you. And when the disciples hear, it is I, don't be afraid, all fear fades away. Because the creator of all things... Their friend and soon their savior is with them. You see, Jesus is connecting all these stories to make his case to show his deity, his godness, to show that he's going to be present, he's going to be in control of all things, and he's personal. The second thing he does to show that he cares, he's, he gets in the boat and guides them to safety. 
We read in the Mark passage that they were completely amazed by the power of Jesus. In John's account, it says, Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. You see, Jesus didn't have to get into the boat. He could have done several things at this point to help, right? I mean, he's already showed his power. He could have just pushed the boat to shore. Or he could have calmed the seas and then told them, y'all keep rowing. Hey, Peter, you got about three more miles to go. I mean, that would be a solid dad move, right? No, he, he showed up. He walks on the water. He comes up alongside the boat and he jumps into the boat to guide them to shore and off to the next adventure. Jesus shows the disciples that they're on this journey together. He's with them. Through the triumphs, through the fun miracles of feeding them 5,000 people, through the storms, and even the ordinary days that life just brings. Through our fears and through our failures, he is with us. So as the band comes, what God is doing here is trying to expand the view of him for his disciples and for us beyond what we can see at the moment. To show that he can be trusted in all seasons of our lives. Because a lot of times when we're looking through our lens of our perspective, I mean, it's, it's very small, right? We're only seeing a small percentage of the bigger picture of what God is doing and who he is. And we need our, our view enlarged. Because when our, our view of God becomes God as I am who I am, Yahweh, God has a name. When we see Jesus as Yahweh in the flesh, God come to us, Emmanuel. All our fears, all our failures, all the hard seasons of life that become secondary. Maybe today you're, you're in a hard season. Maybe you're tired. Perhaps you're gripped by fear and you feel like you can kind of let go of that fear and then it grips you again. Maybe you're a little bit lost. Maybe you've lost direction. If that is where you find yourself, let me encourage you. Let's take a deep breath. Let's physically do that together. Let's all breathe in. And ask God for his presence to rest on our lives to be present with us. Ask him to expand our view of who he is and what he's doing amongst us. I know for myself, I need to remind myself that God is good, he is faithful, he's in control, and he cares about me. We have someone that cares enough to take on all the things, right? He's patiently waiting through life with us. He is bigger than my fears. 
He's bigger than my failures. He's bigger than any season of life that I'm going through. He was, he is, and he will always be faithful. Jesus said, it is I. Don't be afraid. 